So when you, uh, we were looking at the motorbike there before, when you look at the motorbike, uh, the question I asked you really was, do you see risk or opportunity? All right? And this is a case, I think, when um, you're parenting and when you're working with kids. And in fact, even if you're not parenting and you work with kids somewhere else, uh, you can see lots and lots of things happen or moments happen and you need to look at them and just go, what do I see? Do I see risk or do I see opportunity? So let me give you a couple of examples. You get up one day and you find out your kid's got an exam that they haven't studied for. Is it risk or opportunity? Now the truth is, some of you probably at this point, you're going, well, I don't want to have to choose either or. It's both. Yeah, it is. All right? But if you go into it thinking, there's not an opportunity there, there's a big risk and I've got to do something to mitigate against that risk, it's going to change the way you handle it. What about this one? The first day of school. I have a show of hands. Who sees opportunity? Who thinks they probably see risk more than opportunity? Anyone? Oh, you know what's interesting about that is not many people put their hands up there. But that moment when the parents actually let the kid go, there's probably a bit of risk there, right? And probably struggle to see sometimes a little bit of opportunity. What about this one? Riding the push bike for the first time without trainer wheels. He says risk. He says opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. What about this one? Playing a contact sport like rugby, AFL or league where they actually tackle and don't just touch. Risk or opportunity? He says risk. He says opportunity. Cool. You know, the first game I ever took my boys to, which is a rugby game to watch, like live rugby game for them to watch, was at Downlands. And we're watching the under-16s, I think it was, uh, the C-grade under-16s. But they kind of knew what they were doing. It was a GPS competition, I think, at the time. And this kid, uh, a Downlands kid, I think it was, literally wasn't even getting tackled and fell over and broke his arm right in front of us, like about 10 metres away. And my boys, they were a lot younger, like my oldest boy, I don't know, it would have been about seven or something, six or seven. And this kid's just crying out in pain. And <laughs> we're standing there, you know, and eventually the ambulance comes on the field and they cart this guy off to the hospital and he didn't even get tackled. And I thought, that's it. They're never going to want to play again. But they do. Um, what about this one? Finding your child on an iPod when they're meant to be studying. Risk or opportunity? Who sees, who sees risk? Who sees opportunity? There's opportunity there. What about this? Your child getting their peas. Risk or opportunity? Now, you can bet your bottom dollar the child thinks it's opportunity. <laughs> True? That's all it is. There is no risk, especially if they're male. What about this one? Your child chucking a tantrum in the middle of the shopping centre. <laughs> now, it may not be risk, because you probably will have, at that point in time, felt like you've already plunged headlong into disaster, all right? But risk or opportunity. Or what about even when your kids get older? Your kids are in financial trouble. Is that risk or opportunity? It's opportunity. You see, the opportunity that exists in the moment actually depends on how you view it, and it also depends on what you're actually looking for. And what's really interesting is if you've got a view that God doesn't exist, let's uh, take, for example, the evolutionary view. If you've got a view that the whole world came about through accidents and that there's no ultimate purpose in anything, that's going to make it really difficult when you see moments to see purpose in the moments. But that's not actually what we believe 
here at the project because we think God exists. And we think there's more evidence to support God's existence than to support the existence of a world that was created by accidents. And you know what? If you believe that God exists and you believe that he's involved in everything like we do, and you believe that he's always at work around you, then every single moment has an opportunity in it. And God's up to something in every single moment. But the truth is, it's not always peaches and cream, is it? It's difficult. Uh, Time magazine on uh, the 1st of September 2014 ran this article called The Little Narcissists. All right, it was a very positive view of children. The uh, subtitle you may not be able to read just there is, uh, we're all born to adore ourselves, but not all of us grow up. They, uh, they make this really interesting comment in the middle of it about kids, and I, I thought you might be amused by this. This is how it goes. Small children, by their very nature, are moral monsters. It's a nice start, isn't it? They're greedy, demanding, violent, selfish, impulsive, and utterly remorseless. They fight constantly with playmates and siblings, but scream in pain and indignation if they're attacked in return. They expect to be adored, but not disciplined, rewarded, but never penalised, cared for and served by parents and family without caring, for, caring or serving reciprocally. We could have an altar call now, couldn't we? <laughs> People go, I'll come forward on that one, that's my home. That's where I actually live. So I want to cover three things today. I want to cover the call and measuring success in parenting. I want to cover moments of the heart. And uh, I want to finish up with looking at angry moments. So let's look at this one, the call and measuring of success. Well, the Bible's really clear about the fact that it's your job and my job as, as parents to educate our children. The primary educators in our society probably now are seen as the schools. All right. But it's really, really clear that it's actually your job. You're the primary educators of your children. Moses said this uh, to the, the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 4. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Like, that's the most important thing to do is to love God. And he, God makes it really easy to love him, right? Because he loves you. It would be really hard to love him if he didn't love you. True? But he actually loves you, so that makes it easier for you to love him. And his love for you is something like you probably can't even imagine. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen to this. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It's your job as a parent to teach your kids. Here's another verse from Joel 1 verse 3. Listen to this. Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. The way it's all meant to work, the way that God made it to work, is that parents would be telling their kids about God and be the ultimate, the primary educators of their children. On our sign out the front for the project, we say that uh, the point of the project is to make disciples of Jesus. Now, you know what a disciple is? A disciple is not necessarily a religious term. If you go back to the first century, a disciple was someone who learnt from a teacher or from a tutor and wanted to become like them. So what you actually had is uh, you had some uh, philosophers or uh, orators of, of the first century and they would have disciples. Kind of like if you've ever seen our Welcome to the Project video, it's kind of like when you're in a public hospital and you have the, the registrar or whatever and all the little groupies that run after them trying to learn stuff off them. Have you noticed that? It's like, why have I got 35 people 
standing around my, my hospital bed <laughs> talking about something weird, you know, and it's like, okay, because there's one smart guy and everyone else trying to be like the smart guy. That's what discipleship is. That's what God has called parents to do, I believe. God's called you to disciple your children and to teach them. Paul Tripp makes this comment. He says, The primary learning community in God's eyes is the family. What role do parents play in that purpose? They are the educators. What role then does the church, state and the schools play? The church equips the parents, the state and the school support you. This is really important because for a lot of parents, they probably think by default the uh, experts in education are the experts in education. Now they might know a whole bunch of stuff. But it's your job to make sure that you're looking after your kids. All right? And you've got to be clear and you've got to be happy and you've got to have a clear conscience about what is happening with your kids and how they're being handled and you need to be involved in it. And this is probably something that I need to, uh, I personally need to keep working on, but I know uh, a number of years ago it was a significant issue for me is that I actually had no role really at all in my kids' education. So I didn't do homework with them. Uh, I didn't sit down and do any stuff with them. Uh, Ange did a lot of the stuff, all right? I tended to find other stuff to do. Yeah, there's always other stuff to do, but at some point uh, I got to the point where I just thought, I've actually got to switch my head on because I'm responsible uh, with my wife in making sure that my kids are educated the way that they need to be educated across the board because education doesn't just happen in schools, right? There's some education happens in schools. I actually think most education happens outside of school. Would that be true, do you think? So let me ask uh, these question, this question here. What determines success in parenting? This is a really good question. Does your child's behaviour determine your success in parenting? What do you reckon? Yes or no? Some say yes. Anyone say no? All right, some say no. Uh, is uh, the successfulness of your parenting determined by what other people think of you? Yeah, you... A lot of you shake your head, right? But in the practice of it, while your kid's actually throwing a tantrum in the middle of the shops, that's really going to get tested. True? Or you're just going, okay. Because at that point in time, you know what the really strong temptation and, the, and it's, it's almost irresistible is, I've got to stop this because everyone's looking at us. And that's really difficult. Now, in one sense, it's like you don't want to raise hell in the middle of woolies, Right? <laughs> Because everyone's there for a nice shop and your kid's raising hell in there and you just, you know, it's like put a paper bag over the head or something, all right? But paper bags don't help to actually resolve the thing for the child and it probably doesn't even help that much at all. So don't go home and go, oh, that's a parenting strategy, paper bags. (laughs) What about this one? Does you getting what you want determine whether you're successful in your parenting or not? Now, that's a really big one. Because, uh, I mean, even in my preparation for this today, I just thought, how much of my parenting is actually me trying to control the situation and get what I want in the situation instead of doing what's best for the family and for them and for me? Because, you know, it's actually... You know, have you ever noticed this, that you're getting what you want all the time is not always good for you? Has anyone noticed that? Like, it's just not. What about this? Would you say that your parenting is a success if you have peace in your house? Well, it might be, but peace doesn't necessarily determine success, does it? Because you actually might be a really successful parent and have absolutely no peace in the house at all. 
True? And the last one. Man, if I had even five cents for every time I've heard someone say, I tried that and it didn't work, just going, really? Like, is that the ultimate test of what's worthwhile, whether it works or not? Because what's difficult about that is if you start saying, I tried it and it didn't work, what you need to define is you need to define what working is. All right? And if working is all about things fitting in with the way that I want them to fit in, uh, it can just get really messy. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, is it good to have things that work? Yes, it is. But you just need to have a good definition of what working is. All right? Because it can be bad and it can be difficult and a struggle, but still be working. Let me uh, suggest something to you. I think you measure success in parenting by how you handle parenting. And that's going to come down to how do you understand people? What do you believe about people? The way that you work out what is good parenting is going to depend on your belief system. And that's, that's what's difficult. Now, most of you probably heard people say, in their teen years, you just need to get, to get them to the end of the teen years alive. Has anyone ever heard that? If you got them to the end alive, you succeeded. <laughs> Some of you are going, yeah, I almost killed them myself. All right. And and in some sense, the problem is, if you go with an evolutionary point of view about the reality of the world, I've just got to illustrate it with this, then the ultimate goal of evolution is survival of the fittest or survival. True? And it's it's actually really difficult to get a good model of what a successful parent does other than keeping kids alive. Now, you can can, uh, interpret some of that. You can add some stuff in there. See, what you really need is you actually need someone to say, this is how you've been made. This is how kids have been made. This is how you need to look after them. This is how you need to parent them and actually give you some kind of insight into them and you and what you're supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? That's really what you need. If you've got to try and make something up from a belief system, it becomes really difficult. Well, the cool thing is in the Bible is that God actually says, this is how I've made you. This is how I've made kids. This is how I've worked for fam- This is how I've organized families to work. All right? And if you actually look through one of the most disturbing things... Um, I heard, and you can think about this now, one of the most disturbing things I, questions I had was uh, from a, a lecturer of a course I was doing. You know what they asked? They said, can you think of the stereotypically good family? Just think of one from the Bible. Like that's, that's actually really hard. All right? And you might go, well, Noah, right? And he seemed to go okay for a while, but then he, the flood happens, he gets out, he gets drunk and naked, and then his kids start doing some dumb stuff, and then it all starts going to hell again, right? So he's got, this, he's got one kid who thinks it's hilarious that his dad's drunk and naked lying outside, outside of his tent, all right? And so you've got a problem there. I mean, you can go through family after family. You might find, if you work really, really hard, you might find one, maybe two. Now, I think that tells you a couple of things. I think one of the things that tells you is that it's difficult. I think it also tells you that God's not interested in giving you some particular family's model that you've got to emulate. He gives you principles that he wants you to follow about what parenting is like and how to do it. You see, a lot of focus of parents is on changing behaviour. But I want to suggest to you today 
that God wants you to parent in a way that's not just about behaviour change. If you're just about behaviour change, I don't think you aim high enough. Moments of the heart. Here we go. Now, what if I did this? What if I, you know, I've already introduced myself today. What's my name? Excellent. That's really good. Half of you are just going, I can't remember. What are you saying? What if I did this? Hold on. G'day. Uh, I'm Dave. How you doing? Now, am I Dave? What am I? Pete with a jacket on and a low voice, right? You get that? All right. Hold on. Yeah, get out, mate. How you doing? <laughs> How you doing? I look like a grandma parent now, don't I? <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that, should I? <laughs> we'll edit that out, I think. Yeah, g'day, I'm Barry. Am I Barry? No, no not Barry. Do you know why? So any, anyone tell me, why, 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 why didn't I become Dave and Barry? Because I'm Pete, all right? All, all I changed was my clothes, right? That's all I changed. I put a hat on, I put a jacket on, I could have put tracky dacks on and said I'm a Westie from the western suburbs of Sydney and a flannelette shirt and Ugg boots, all right? But you know what? I'm still going to be Pete because I'm Pete on the inside. True? I mean, you could get into the inside in a really detailed way and say, all right, we've worked out what the DNA of Pete is and you've got exactly the same one you're Pete, all right? It doesn't matter what you do on the outside. The really interesting thing is, though, with parenting, a lot of the time with uh, the moments that we have in parenting, you know, in our, in our poorer moments probably, you know what we're really doing? We're, we're putting a hat on our kids or telling our kids to change their clothes, you know? And I don't mean that in a literal way. We're just saying, well, I want you to just stop doing that. And when you're saying, I want you to just stop doing that, what are you saying? Well, you're saying, just put a different shirt on, please. I don't like that shirt. Or I don't like that hat. I don't like those pants. That doesn't match. All right, I get that comment a bit in my house. Maybe we'll let that out too. <laughs> you get my point? Parenting's not just about behaviour. I don't even think it's mostly about behaviour. This is a great quote from uh, Ted Tripp. The thing that alerts you to your child's need for correction is his behaviour. Behaviour irritates... Is that true? Give me a hearty amen to that. (laughs) It irritates and thus calls attention to itself. Behaviour becomes your focus. You think you've corrected when you've changed unacceptable behaviour to behaviour that you sanction and appreciate. What's the problem, you ask? The problem's this. Your child's needs are far more profound than his aberrant behaviour. Remember, his behaviour does not just spring forth uncaused. His behaviour, the things he says and does, reflects his heart or her heart. If you are really to help him, you must be concerned with the attitudes of heart that drive the behaviour. So... I'm just going to give you a quick Cook's tour of the heart, all right, according to the, uh, the scriptures. So I'll just move over here. What you've got, uh, the Bible talks about the heart uh, often. And when it talks about the heart, it's really talking about the three different uh, 
aspects of uh, the human, the internal part of, of uh, humanity that kind of work in unison together. And those are the thoughts, the desires and the feelings. Now, the Bible doesn't say that thoughts, desires and feelings are three different parts that make up the heart. It just seems like there's a constant state of flux going on between those three things all the time in the heart. Now, you notice on the outside here that kids and humans, because you notice I said this is the child and the adult, have got strengths and weaknesses and there's temperament stuff and there's bodily biological stuff. Uh, There's troubles and suffering that kind of happens to them. And there's a... um, there's always a societal context in which people exist. But the really important thing that I want to just make really clear at the moment is the moral centre, according to the Bible, of every single person, and particularly children, is always the heart. Now, if someone came to church and they were an amputee, you wouldn't say, well, you're a, you're a bad person because you've had to have part of your leg chopped off, would you? That's, that's a weakness. So when you look at... Children, when you look at adults, I think everyone in this room has got strengths and weaknesses. And strengths and weaknesses are not a moral failing. Like if someone's bad at maths, they don't need to say sorry and confess their sin. All right? They're just not good at something and they're not strong at something. Now, here's the thing. The strengths and weakness can actually jazz up the heart and impact the heart. Now, who knows if you've got a child who's really bad at maths that sometimes they're going to lose their temper and they're going to get really, really frustrated. And as soon as they lose their temper and they get angry and frustrated, you know what's happened? Is the weakness has influenced the heart in a way and now they're actually acting in a moral way. Does everyone kind of get what I'm saying? And you can go the whole way around there. You can look at temperament. You know, I mean, by nature, some people are going to be um, oh, how do I say this? By nature, some people are going to be a bit more moody. They're going to fluctuate in their moods a bit more. That's a better way to put it. They fluctuate more. Some people are going to be really calm. You know that Far Side cartoon, The Moods of an Irish Red Setter or something? Have you seen that one? It's like seven photos, depressed, sad, happy, and they're all exactly the same. <laughs> and some people are like that, right? They're just really level, really flat in terms of temperament. They kind of take things in their stride. Um, and then, I mean, it doesn't take much to realise that when you get, when you and I get sick in our body, or maybe um, anyone here who's hasn't had enough sleep, that that can supercharge the heart, and the heart can respond in that kind of context as well. Is it wrong to be tired? No, it's not. Is it harder to handle things when you're tired? Absolutely. So you can see how the tiredness is there and it actually has an impact on the heart and it sets a context or sets a pressure point for the heart and the pressure point um, and the heart will decide what it's going to do in the midst of that. And the interesting thing is I've only talked about negative things. I mean, one of the things, one of the particular dangers, I mean, you can look up there, one of them is uh, strengths and weaknesses. I talked about weaknesses. You know, strengths can be a real trap too. If you've got a child that's really good at doing a lot of things, you know what, the, the, the danger there is in their heart, they'll start to think that they're worth something because of what they do. That's a danger too. So there's lots of things that kind of supercharge the heart. But you need to remember that's where the moral centre of children uh, is. And what I want to throw out to you today is that it's absolutely critical because... What rules the heart rules behaviour. 
So the other night I said to um, one of my sons, just really lost it the other night. And when he started to calm down, I said, what was he in charge of your heart then? And he, just, he didn't understand me. He's my younger son. He doesn't know what it means, What's, you know, what was in charge of your heart. So I said, what was, what was boss? Was this thing boss? He goes, yes, it was. <laughs> so something came in and started to be the boss of his heart. And it determined his thoughts, his feelings, and his desires. And he, uh, and he went with it. In the uh, Narcissism uh, article in Time magazine, there was this classic couple of paragraphs, um, which I thought would be really useful to read. The heart wants what it wants, said Woody Allen, in a supremely narcissistic moment as he blithely explained his decision to ditch his longtime partner, Mia Farrow, in favour of her 21-year-old daughter. Now, you might not like the fact that he's ditched his uh, Mia Farrow and gone for her 21-year-old. But you know what Woody Allen's just taught you? He just goes, he's just told you exactly what I just told you. He said, what happens is something, you want something in your heart, it rules your heart, and you go after it. Your behaviour is a reflection of your heart. Well, that's what I did, is how Ponzi King Bernie Madoff responded to a fellow inmate who offered the hard-to-argue-with opinion that stealing money from old ladies was a, a bad thing to do. There's another word in there. You see, it's all about the heart. Everyone lives out of their heart all of the time. And I want to give you an example. There was one night at the Sondergeld dinner table. This is quite a, a long time ago. And to be honest, I can't even remember which child this was. And out came dinner. You know what dinner was? Pork, meatballs. All right? And they're pretty nice. Okay? But you know what? They're probably a little bit nicer when they've got sweet chilli sauce on them. Anyone a sweet chilli sauce fan here? So it comes out, here comes out the dinner. But on this particular night, the, uh, the edict was from uh, mum and dad that we're going to do it without sweet chilli sauce tonight. Look out. Man, there were shoes getting thrown by this one particular kid. It was yelling. I leaned over to one of my other sons and I said, I said to him, I said, what's he in charge of him? And you know what he said? He goes, sweet chilli sauce. <laughs> And it was followed by a, isn't that stupid giggle? You know that one? So sweet chilli sauce is in charge of him and he laughed about it. Because you know what was happening in that moment is my son was obeying his heart. And sweet chilli sauce ruled my son's heart for that moment and he obeyed it. When he calmed down and the sauce hopped off the throne of his heart, he ate all of his dinner including his vegetables. But at that moment he didn't want to do anything because what actually happened was sweet chilli sauce took control of his heart. So I want to encourage you today, you need to aim for the heart with your children. And let me give you a few uh, thoughts about how you can actually do this. First one is this, always be thinking about what's behind the behaviour. The behaviour is not the issue, what's going on in the heart is the issue. Run role plays in general discussion to see if your children can pick what the motivation is for someone else's act. Right? This happens at the Sondergeld house often. In fact, I think probably the boys get sick of it. All right? But we sit there and we just go, what do you reckon would happen? What do you think about this? And we'll just, I'll just throw out the scenario. Ange will throw out a scenario. What do you guys actually think? What do you reckon you'd do? Uh, sometimes we throw out things that are in the current affairs and we just go, hey, this happened today in the news. What do you reckon they're up to? And so we'll sit there and we'll have a conversation about it. And all the time what we're trying to do is we're trying to get behind the behaviour to work out what people are up to 
uh, underneath in their hearts. You want to learn... Look, you probably do most of this stuff anyway, but here's another encouragement. Ask the why question and learn how to ask it in 30 different ways because that's a really, really important question to ask kids. Why do you reckon... Why would you do that? Now... When someone's really fired up, we're going to get to anger in a minute, but when someone's really fired up, you know what? They're not going to know in the moment why. But that's what you want to get to in the end. You want to actually sit down and have the conversation and say, look, what was actually going on there? You see, if God actually made people, then what's of prime importance is human beings' relationship with God. That's the most important relationship and everything that you do operates within that context. So if you're here today and you're not someone who follows Jesus, you don't say you're a disciple of Jesus, that's okay. But you just need to know that your actions and the stuff that you do still has to do with God, even though you don't want to have anything to do with him. Because you can't stop that because he's everywhere and he's involved in everything. And at the end of the day, when you're working with your kids, they're actually doing things with respect to God as well as doing things with respect to other people all the time. And you actually can't avoid that. Listen, be prepared for this to take more time than reward or punishment. Now, you can't always take all the time that you need to take, but you need to have an overall strategy that says, I'm not just going to reward and punish to fix things and to keep things quiet. I'm aiming for the heart, which means there's going to be some moments you're going to have to sit down and it's going to take a little bit more time. And that... Has anyone ever had that moment with your kids where you just go... I know that I need to talk to my kid about this and we need to spend a bit of time on this, but I just want to go and do something else. Has anyone ever had that? And you don't, you don't have the conversation? Maybe it's just Nick and I, obviously, but that's okay. Uh, we'll confess our sins to you later. Um, but it's, it's a really strong temptation. So uh, you just got to build into your thinking that you're going to have to take some time out sometimes. All right, let's get angry. <laughs> Not really. Angry moments. You know what I hear people say sometimes? I hear people say things about emotions and I disagree with them. This is what they say. They say things like this. It's an emotion. There's nothing wrong with it. It just kind of happens. You can't do anything about emotions. The best thing that you can do about emotions is when they come to you, you just got to get them out and you've got to express them to people. Has anyone heard people say that kind of stuff? Like, and their kind of big idea is that emotions are kind of morally neutral. And like the morally good thing to do is just kind of shake the bag and then let the cat out kind of thing, you know? It's like the cat's crazy, let it out. At least it's out of the bag. Um, at least I've expressed my emotions. Well, I want to suggest to you that I don't think that emotions are really morally neutral. I don't believe that it's true that what I feel is what I feel and there's nothing I can do about it. Because I think emotions actually tell you about what you do and what you experience. Emotions express our heart before God as we react to circumstances. Now, I'm not saying emotions are bad either. I'm just saying emotions tell you something. Some emotions are bad. True? But emotions tell you about a circumstance or something that you're in that you're reacting to. It's really about what you're what is in your heart toward God in the midst of a circumstance. 
And the really interesting thing, I was reading something in preparation for this thing about anger. You know one thing anger says in the midst of the flare-up? You know what it says? Is it says, my will be done right now in this universe. It's actually, at that moment, the angry person, when you get angry, the angry person is saying, my stuff needs to be done right now. And everyone needs to do it. Everyone needs to come and, and, and come to my bidding. It's an interesting thing. I might just do a quick um, little survey, if that's okay. This is for the uh, fathers. Just raise your hand. I'll be really interested because I'm one of these and um, I've heard a number of people say this. If, if, if you're a fellow here and you thought, I'm not an angry person prior to having kids, who, who actually, are there, any, are there any fellows here who are just going, I'm not an angry guy before you had kids? And then you had kids and you're going, I'm an angry guy. Can you put anyone with me? Yeah, that's me, man. I, I would have said, I am, I'm just not an angry guy. I don't get angry about anything, really. And then I had four sons. And we've got six people who, in their own ways, get pretty narcissistic sometimes in the house. And there's conflict in there. It gets difficult. So here's another... Um, Matt, can you come up? We're just going to... This is like engaging the senses. So I've just asked Matt if he'd start his motorbike up. You might want to... Open that door over there because I love my wife and I'd like to walk home with her, not, not, not carry her home. You're just going to start it up. Just gun it a couple of times. Just gun it a couple of times. Appreciate it, mate. Some of you are going, what's the point of that? Well, you know, what's the, you know what the point of it is? When you get in a situation and you get angry, I'm sure that bike could have gone a lot louder, but we didn't want to scare the kids or any of the adults, actually. But You know, have you ever noticed that when you get angry, it's not the only thing that you can think about? Just, it's dominating. It's like for a moment there when the bike was running and it was loud, like it's, it's like if he really revved that, that would have been the only thing probably all of us would have been thinking about in that moment. Do you get what I'm saying? And that's kind of what anger does. It, 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 it kind of takes over. And you know what's really interesting is that anger actually comes from the heart, folks. Anger is actually about what the heart loves. This is what um, James 4 says in verse 1 to 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst your children and between you and your children? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire something, you want something, you don't get it, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So when your kids fight, what's actually happening? You've got two people, at least, who want two different things and neither of them are giving them to each other and they're going to fight for it and they're going to get angry about it. It's all about the heart. Because at the point in time that your child and even you are getting angry, one of the questions you need to ask your kids is what specifically does my child desire, want, fear or believe in at this moment? Because there's something that's ruling their hearts at that point. And this is, uh, to be honest, I mean, this is probably one of the most compelling things, I think, for the truthfulness of the scriptures is that they describe humanity really, really well. 
I mean, you can go through all the apologetics about all the documentary evidence and uh, the fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. They're all great. But I actually think the thing that is the most powerful is the Bible actually describes people super, super well. And when it describes conflict and when it describes anger here, it describes us well because it's what actually rules our heart that is driving the behaviour. Now, in the early church, are there people in the early church stabbing each other, (laughs) killing each other, posting videos on the internet of it? No, they're not. But there's a character kind of assassination thing going on because you know when you want something and someone else won't give it to you and it takes control of you, your next job is either they've got to give it to you or you've got to get them out of the way. And you can do that lots of different ways. And in my house, we boys, they tend to do it physically. Uh, I don't really know what it's like, the way that girls do it, but in my house, it's physically. But I know a lot of people, the older you get, people get really, really good at using their words and they can kind of kill each other with their words. But it's good in that moment, we'll work through some stuff to do with anger here, it's good in that moment to remember some of these scriptures. Proverbs 15 verse 1 is from King Solomon. Um, He said this, A soft answer turns away wrath or anger, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now I'm not having a go at you, but you know what's most natural for a parent when a kid's getting angry is to get upset with them and to try and dominate them. And to try and use power to stop the situation from unfolding. Now, is it, do parents have an authority? Yeah, they do. Is it good for them to be involved in leading their kids? Yes, it is. But do you know what? What can often happen, and this is something I noticed in myself, what can often happen is my son is losing the plot and it's wrecking my life because <laughs> I want peace in my house. And and I go, well, I need to get what I want. And so I'll get upset with him. And both of us will be angry at each other. And it'll be a very similar expression of the heart. It's It's a classic thing, I think, that people get angry at angry people. It's like you're losing control because you're not getting what you want and I'm going to start losing control of you because I'm not getting what I want. And you've just got two people who have their hearts ruled by something uh, going at it. And this one here in Ephesians 6 verse 4, it's really important just as a context setter for dealing with anger. Um, it says this, it says, Fathers, and I think it's mothers too, don't provoke your children to anger. As a lot of times the parents can do things that just make it really difficult for kids not to get angry. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let me ask you these questions. Do I sometimes lose control when my child becomes angry? Anyone in that category? Because you know what? This is a really interesting thing and it's, you know, you probably thought I was hoping to have a happy day on Father's Day, right? But it's like you model it, don't you? I mean, I think I've modelled lots of times. I've modelled losing control when someone else is not giving me what I want. So why would me losing control with my son when he's losing control help him to get control? Like it won't. It's like I'm modelling it right there. Do I and my spouse lose control with each other when we disagree? That's a good question. When your child watches you and your spouse interact, is it, is, it, is it calm, is it measured, is it respectful, or does it get out of control? If it gets out of control, you just need to know... Um, look, kids are really smart. I think from a really early age, they work out that if you... Um, they work out whether you actually do what you say or not. 
And I think in the end, I think what happens is they just start ignoring what you say and they just watch what you do and they copy that. Do my expectations for my child vary from one day to the next? That can be very provoking for kids. Do I discipline my child for something one day and then fail to discipline them for the same thing another day? That can provoke to anger. Do I apply different consequences to the same misbehaviour? That can provoke kids. Do I communicate a consistent, low-level attitude of frustration with my child? Like, like if I ask you, do you love your kids? You'd probably say yes. What if I ask you, do you actually like them? Because they can tell whether you like them or not. And you know what? If they get a sense that you don't like them and that you've got a low-level frustration with them, they're going to fly off the handle more often and they're, just, they're going to get that. It doesn't matter what you say. You can give them a hug. You can give them a kiss. You can tell them you love them. But if underneath they get this sense that you actually don't like them, uh, it's not going to go very far for you and it's going to be very difficult. I found at school as a teacher that if I came in and I was overflowing with how much I said I enjoyed the class, now you can't lie about it, and I'm not telling you to go home and lie, but you've just got to be on a positive note. You've just got to go, look, I just really, man, I, just, I really enjoyed that. That was fun. That was really enjoyable. And you just tell them. And you know what? They just act differently. Because you're like that too. There's probably, in all of your lives, there's probably people where you just go, I don't think they like me. And it actually provokes you, in a sense, to act in a particular way toward them. You probably act differently toward them because you're just going, that person doesn't like me. What about this one? Are you typically preoccupied, busy, on your iPhone, your Android phone, your iPad, iPod, i whatever, inattentive, frazzled, so that you rarely connect with your child? Do you look them in the eye? Look them in the eye. Okay. I'm going to give you some tips, some general tips for handling angry children. General practice. Here we go. This is where we finish up. Don't react to your children, folks. All right? Because reactions rarely end in a good outcome. Number two. Check yourself to make sure that you're not exasperating them or provoking them, which is what the previous screen was. You'll be able to get this off uh, the project's internet site and our website if you want it. This one's really important. Confess to your children if you're getting angry. Identify with them that you're struggling with a similar problem to them and put yourself on their playing field. Look, we're all the same. Your kids are just a mini version of you. And that scares the life out of some of you. When you look at it, you just go, man, that's exactly what I do. One of my sons has worked out now when I'm going to come in and apologise to him. And I'm trying to work out whether that's a good thing or not. <laughs> he knows. You know, like, I'll go in there and I'll hand, handle a situation. He can tell when I've handled a situation poorly. And then when I go back in and apologise to him, you know what he says to me? He goes, I knew you'd come back in. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd ask you, I mean, I could ask you, do you think that's good or bad? Well, it's probably a bit of both. It's bad in the sense that Dad blows it. But at least I, I take some kind of consolation in the fact that he at least knows that for me, when I blow it, I'm going to need to fix it up. And I think one thing that's really important with kids is that you make sure that when you blow it, you say sorry to them and you ask them to forgive you. 
Because I think one of the most important things that you need to teach kids is how to repent, how to say sorry. And I don't even want to... We haven't even got time to go into that. But the whole notion of just saying sorry, I'm sorry that I did this, name the thing that they did, and then please forgive me, please release me from the debt that I've created. Put yourself on their playing field. Look, you're not the professional. I'm not the professional. I blow it. Things rule my heart the same way that things rule their heart. And we know the best outcome is going to be that Jesus rules both of our hearts because when Jesus rules people's hearts, people love God and they love other people really well. That's just how it works. You might go, well, that's magic. Well, it is a kind of magic. But that's just how it works. You've got to get something ruling the heart that's actually going to bring about good outcomes. And the only thing that brings about the ultimate good outcomes is Jesus being in charge of someone's heart. Build the relationship. If your kid's difficult, you need to spend more time with them. <laughs> it's the bottom line. You've got to go closer to them. And it's kind of like, that is the last thing I want to do. I mean, when I was working at school here, the really difficult kids, you know what you need to do? You just need to pursue them. And you need to spend more time with them. And it's going to be really difficult at times. Have a look at the way that you talk about your child to others. And just be careful too. The last one there is just be careful. You know when kids, I, I seem to catch myself on this a fair bit. I, I have a no habit. I come up and ask for something, no. Our default answer is no. You know what I'm saying? So just be careful. Notice if you've got a no habit. Or maybe a good one is, oh, why not? That would be a good answer. They go, can we do that? Well, I, don't, I can't see why not. My no habit is mostly because I want to keep doing what I'm doing and I don't want to do what they want to do. And, you know, like sometimes you can look at this stuff and you go, well, it just looks really hard and it's going to take a lot of time and effort. But that's where Jesus is really smart. You know, he said, if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. And yet, instinctively, most of us sitting here today, you just go, it won't be as good if I don't get what I want. But Jesus actually said that it's actually better when you don't get what you want and you live for other people. Our problem is we don't believe him. <laughs> we still think that it's better if we get what we want. couple more. Model consistency in approach. Respect and care for them the way you want them to. In expectations and rules, be consistent. In discipline, look, not everything is a 10 out of 10 seriousness. I remember having a debate in a staff meeting at a school. Uh, the school's rules were you had to have mostly blue or mostly white shoes. And this kid in the school had navy blue shoes completely and bright yellow shoelaces. And there was this debate going on about whether he should be allowed to have bright yellow shoelaces. Right? And it was pretty high end. And what actually happened in a bunch of these discussions that we used to have, it's like, well, I think maybe that kid's probably going to go to hell for having <laughs> yellow shoelaces. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? It got that height. This is like outright disobedience against God that he's got yellow shoelaces instead of blue ones. And I'm just, look, it's not 10 out of 10, all right? And what, what can happen sometimes is you can get in the, in the vibe that everything is just a high-level offence. Be careful of that because that makes it difficult. And model a restorative approach. Apologise to your child and ask their forgiveness when you lose control. And simplicity. Make it simple for them. Now, a couple of really quick points for the crisis moment, then I'm going to show you a clip and we're done. 
If you've got a kid that blows up, what do you do? Well, you know what you need to do? You need to send the kid. You need to put the kid somewhere where the thing can just get off the throne of their heart. Now, I don't think it's, it's good at this point to punish them. One of my sons says to me, when he gets angry, uh, the worst thing that we can do is to punish him in the midst of him being angry. And it's true. It just doesn't work a lot of the time. Now, you have to control situations. I'm not saying that because you can be in some dangerous situations. But you just need to find a way in the crisis moment... Uh, for your child to calm down and to see themselves more accurately because you get blinded a bit like the motorbike you get blinded by it uh, sometimes you can use a bit of humor to de-escalate um, an escalating moment you need to remember that to re-engage with your child I think if you don't re-engage with your child and you just isolate them and get it off the throne of their lives and then you just go oh, it's okay now we can just get on with life well you haven't really dealt with the issue you've just kind of swept it under the carpet um, and you haven't really dealt with it. So you need to make sure that you revisit it. You need to have a good conversation with them and work together with them to develop a plan to handle their triggers for anger. So that's something that uh, we've done a little bit in our place. Is just like, can, can you, let's just try and get as precise as we can and find that moment where it starts to grab a hold of your heart. And let's see if we can start to kind of interject at that point of time and try and slow the thing down and you know what you're probably going to need to hang on for the ride this clip goes for about five minutes so i hope you'll be okay this is a 60 minutes clip back to 60 minutes for decades i've listened to people's stories and this is among the most riveting i've ever heard brett archibald a 50 year old south african on a surfing trip to indonesia falls overboard in the middle of the night one man all alone in the ocean, fighting the elements, fending off sharks and battling to keep his sanity. He hopes he'll be rescued. However, after 29 hours treading water, most people have given up on him. But not his wife, holding a candlelight vigil in Cape Town, nor a legendary Australian sea salt named Doris. An empty horizon, a vast ocean, and slowly a small figure is revealed, floating, sometimes swimming, in this terrible, lonely, watery void. Also on board, the Western Australian surfers. I remember standing at ships at 6.30am, heading out, we're just on our heading, and, you know, just going, I just wonder, you know, are we going to find this guy? I'm just starting to not believe that we're going to find him. A lot of time is passing by now. Yeah, well, yeah. Were we on a search and recovery yeah. or search and rescue? Yeah. So there was speculation with our, within yeah, our might have group. just been looking for a body, is yeah. what you're telling me. Precisely. And this was so horribly close to being the truth. After more than 28 hours in the water, Brett gave up. Having once read that drowning was actually a pleasant way to die, he swam down and tried to end it all. Then I just sucked water down my lungs. I mean, really, and I felt my lungs fill up with water right to the back of my throat, out my nose, and I knew, okay, now, now I was meant to just slip into unconsciousness, sink to the bottom of the ocean, it would be all beautiful. Well, let me tell you, the will to survive kicked in there, and I have never fought for my life like anything in it before. I mean, I just... I went, my brain was just frying. There's no way. And I came shooting out that water, coughing, retching, spluttering. 
and I mean just terrible. And as I was lying there, I saw the master of the Baron Joey. Contact. A head in the ocean. A needle in a haystack. Stand by your feet, crew. My friend, coming up the stairs right this second. And the boat wheeled around and then there he is. There he is and there's just this white, white thing bobbing in the water. And his hands are doing this, I think, unbelievable. Sheer elation. It was a feeling of um, incredible elation. We found the lost South African. Been at sea now 29 hours in the middle of the ocean. Hello guys! <laughs> What did you think of his condition when he came onto the boat? It's pretty good. He had a head like a beetroot, but he was pretty good. And a few whacks in the nose from the seagulls trying to pluck his eyes out. I didn't know seagulls did that. Me either. I thought they only plucked chips. The sunburnt head, the scarred nose and the withered hands were the only obvious signs of his ordeal. Brett and his wife Anita hadn't seen this footage until we showed them. You're not having a lot to say about this. No, this is... That's when Anita was struck by the reality of just how lucky her husband had been. Lie down, grab a water and a blanket. Even if you think that there were a couple of boats out there, you can't see a head even in the calm ocean. Hmm. Someone bobbing around there. I mean, it's a miracle that they found him. It's a radical, radical story. It's that he's here is a is divine intervention. <sighs> You're amazing. You are amazing. Sure, I'm looking at this as and just I'm the luckiest radical. girl alive. No, but I'm lucky. <laughs> no, Brett. I'm the lucky one. Yo, 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 yo. Yeah, I'm not religious, but that oak up there was looking after me because I, 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 you know, you just can do no more. This guy here, Doris. You kind of knew he would be there, but you're still surprised. Yeah. It's lucky. Well, not lucky, great calculation on your part. Yeah, maybe. I had to get him. There's no way I've given up. I'm getting him. Anita, what's your thoughts about this man called Doris? What, what do you say to someone who's given you everything that you want? I only want my husband, my daughter and my son. I want us together and healthy and alive. How do I ever say thank you? From the bottom of my heart, I'll be so grateful to him and everyone on that boat. The lives of everyone here have been touched and changed. Of course, none more so than Brett Archibald, who travelled the toughest of pathways to discover a very simple truth. I kept thinking, I've only had 10 years with this woman, it's not enough. And, and my two little kids, they are too little to be without a dad. And I tell you what, I'll never miss another cricket match, I'll never miss another piano recital. Because we all get wrapped up in the wrong things, you know, we chase... We chase stuff that at the end of the day is worth nothing 
when when you're actually facing your maker. It's a great line at the end, isn't it? We get wrapped up in lots of stuff that's worth nothing at the end. And this is where I want to finish. And I want to leave you with this challenge. And you know this. And he noticed this in the video. You know what he noticed? When he faced death, he realised he only had a finite number of moments with his family and with his kids. And everyone's only got a finite number. And you know what? You don't get to do replays. And I think uh, I've heard it plenty of times already, you know, if you talk to someone whose kids have left home, they'll say to you how quickly it all went. In the middle, it feels like forever, and it feels like it's never going to end, especially in the difficult moments. But for someone whose kids have left home, they say it just flashed by, and they're gone. And that's the thing about life, is you have a finite number of moments. Now, how many is it going to be? I don't know. How many moments will you have with your kids where you can shape them, where you can water the seed, where you can tend to them? I don't know. But you just don't get to have them again. So you just want to do the best that you can with the moments that you've got. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you're, uh, you're in every moment. Every single moment of our lives, you're in it. And you're up to something good in it. God, I pray that you'd help us to seize the moments that exist in our families, for those who have got families. You'd help us to seize them. Help us to see the opportunity that exists in them. God, in a sense, anger is the perfect problem because what the heart wants is on display loud and proud. And God, I pray in those moments, for any parents here that struggle with the anger of their kids, that you'd help them to engage with that moment, engage with what's happening in the kid's heart. And, uh, and help them, God, to disciple their kids into getting Jesus ruling their heart. Because good things come when you're in charge of all of us. Amen.